Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I'm sure many of you all are wondering, where have I been all this time? I'm sure many of you all are also wondering, is Kirk Monroe ever going to come back on the air again anytime soon? Well, I have good news to report. The answer to those questions is yes, and it's happening right now as I speak. My wife and I have been on vacation since uh, Thursday evening. Uh, we were in Colonial Williamsburg, I should say Williamsburg, Virginia, that is, for those of you who know Williamsburg, but um, should be reminded that at one time the capital of Virginia was, in fact, Williamsburg. But we've been here since uh, Thursday evening, and today we spent um, the day in Yorktown visiting the Yorktown Victory Center Museum. And for those of you who, um, yes, are big into the American Revolution like I am, we must remember that the war ended at Yorktown in terms of the last major battle. But of course, we must also be reminded that um, that the American Revolutionary War does not officially end until 1783 with the Treaty of Paris. But nonetheless, um, I've missed you all, and I'm glad to be back on the air. And we are going to be discussing a new uh, podcast uh, session episode, I should say, with Paul Revere's ride, or I should say to David Hackett Fisher's Paul Revere's ride. So the last time I was on the air, which probably seemed like an eternity, we had discussed um, some uh, very important uh, information regarding um, Paul Revere's, um, what do you call it, his um, (laughs) presence in the sense that um, he's become a thorn to uh, General Thomas Gage. Ironically, the thorn that General Gage is dealing with is not just one man. It's a thorn that will continue to grow where other men are actively involved, not only in the Sons of Liberty organization, but through planning their works uh, secretly. Paul Revere, John Hancock, Samuel Adams, Dr. Joseph Warren, James Otis, and yes, I should add John Adams' name as well, Ironically, though, John Adams, as ardent of a patriot as he is, he's not actively involved in the same way that the other men are. Perhaps, for one, he, um, you know, not too long ago defended the, um, the accused from the Boston Massacre incident, but two, John Adams, even by this point in time in 1774, he along with many other um, members who have attended the First Continental Congress, do want to believe in their true hearts that reconciliation can be made. But it's just a matter of time before many of these men come to the inevitable where they have um, come to unfortunate realization that no matter how far we extend the olive branch on our end, King George III and and the majority of Parliament are going to refuse to bend. But right now we have to focus our energies on the exact present moment in time that we are um, currently focusing on, which is still 1774. So in this particular podcast session, we're going to discuss Thomas Gage, Paul Revere, and the powder alarms. Okay? 
it, after all, it does make sense that we're talking about Thomas Gage and Paul Revere because they are the two primary focal characters in Paul Revere's ride. But we're going to learn about the powder alarms. Now, I'm going to tell you all this right now. When we think of powder, we're not talking about, you know, random powder that you might find at a store, like at a grocery store, for example. I'm talking about gunpowder. I'm talking about how powder is stored in secure places and this and we're going to learn about the um, debate over who is in control of the gunpowder that you would find at a magazine house and whom feels that the gunpowder belongs to more than just one person so fasten your seatbelts and let's get ready to learn more about Paul Revere's ride or I should say David Hackett Fisher's Paul Revere's Ride. So our first leadoff question will be the following. What took place on September 1st, 1774? For starters, General Gage set his plan in motion with intent on seizing the largest stock of gunpowder in New England at a place called the Provincial Powder House being uh, located six miles northwest of Boston. Secondly, the mission behind seizing the gunpowder had to be planned with the utmost level of secrecy. Well, if you're going to perform a mission that you know is sensitive and where the stakes are very high, the mission must be small. It has to be committed and the last thing you don't want to do is go chirping in a bar over it. In other words, have a small number of men whom you know are trustworthy men whom are of uh, the high ranks in the military, stationed in Boston, whom know how to go about carrying out a mission, but it will also require meeting men on the opposite side who have connections to the um, magazine house. Well, think about this. If you have connections to the magazine house, you um, you are you were employed perhaps by the king himself. You um, have ties to the crown. You basically have the keys to lock and unlock the gun the the magazine house. The keys aren't going to be given to a random person. So, that said in mind, whom will General Gage select? to oversee this mission. Yes, Gage himself is planning it, but he's got to have someone to carry it out. He selects a fellow by the name of Lieutenant Colonel George Madison, whom is commander of the 4th Foot. He will lead 260 men whom were fit to achieve this mission. 260 men seems like a lot, but you know what? I think it's fair to say that these 260 men whom are going to um, be a part of this mission are probably this are probably the equivalent of what I see on television sometimes for uh, commercials for um, the Marines, the few, the proud. So in this case, these 260 men probably fall into that same category of the few, the proud, the elite. They exemplify what's called survival of the fittest. To, un, to perform uh, missions that are of this high caliber. 
So in the summer of 1774, Massachusetts towns, that is a multitude of the towns in Massachusetts, are already doing something in their eyes that's one step ahead of the game. They are withdrawing supplies, or I should say munitions from the powder house. While they are withdrawing supplies, there is a, a uh, setback here. I don't know if they see this as a setback, but it, but regardless of what you leave behind, it can be a setback. The townspeople are leaving an interim reserve behind. Now, we're going to find out here eventually soon how much was left behind. Can it be to your advantage to leave an interim reserve behind? Yes, it can. On the other hand, can it be a disadvantage? Yes, especially if the enemy, out of nowhere, gets a hold of the interim reserve supply. So loyalists, that is, by 1774, the term loyalist is becoming more pervasive. In other words, it's, be, it's becoming a widespread term that defines someone who is uh, loyal to the crown, loyal to king and country. Prior to the term loyalist, most people who were um, adamant in supporting the crown were just simply called Tories. But as tensions continued to mount and rise by 1774, those who are loyal to the crown are becoming more and more defined as being loyalist. So the loyalists view these supplies from the powder house as belonging to the king. In other words, the king is the one that um, authorized the gunpowder to be placed in the store, in the storage facility or in the magazine house, and the people who are overseeing the protection of the magazine house are those who have to be loyal to the crown, otherwise they have no business even coming near the vicinity or the property of the magazine house itself. On the other hand, those whom are not loyal to king and country are what we call um, the Whigs, and that's what people of that sector are being defined more and more by come 1774. The Whigs view supplies from the powder house as belonging directly to the people at large. In other words, if the people are going to be protected from outside intrusions or from an intrusion within, the people ought to have the right to have access to those munitions. And of course, I think it's the standard, I know it was in colonial Virginia, but uh, probably the same for other colonies where militias were um, established to, um, where it became a requirement for men between the ages of 16 and 60 to serve in the militia. So if that was the case, which it was in the majority of the colonies like Virginia, then they would have had access to uh, being obtained, they would have had access to being given um, arms to defend not only just themselves, but to defend the uh, greater um, community from uh, an attack. And of course, even in Virginia, for example, not to get off track, but usually when people were called into uh, service from a militia perspective, whatever was given to them from the magazine house, they were usually had involved 
what do you call it, um, fighting off Indian invasions or Indian attacks, let alone. But in Massachusetts, that's a whole different story. We're talking about the people's safety against a an oppressive regime 3,000 miles away, but yet there's almost 3,000 troops present in Boston whom are still making people's lives miserable for the greater commonwealth of Massachusetts. And of course, when I say commonwealth, folks, remember there are four states in the United States today that... Um, Use the, that operate under the Commonwealth terminology, Virginia being one, Massachusetts number two, Pennsylvania third, Kentucky four. What does Commonwealth mean? Common means um, political. Wealth means many. In other words, how do we go about distributing um, the wealth amongst the masses of the people whom we are representing? whether it be in Virginia, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Kentucky. So it is fair to say that those uh, people who believe that the, um, that the supplies belong to the mass majority, then yes, uh, the common mean not just so much the politics behind it, but the wealth. In other words, this um, commodity belongs to the mass people. In other words, the mass people need to have something to protect themselves against outside intrusion or let alone foreign intrusion because this because the british presence on boston or massachusetts soil to the eyes of the patriots or the Tor uh, whigs rather is an example of foreign intrusion who told general gage about the town's withdrawal of supplies from the powder house I don't expect you all to know the answer to this one, and that's fine, but I will tell it to you anyways. It was a fellow Tory who was from Cambridge. His name was William Brattle. Something tells me that Mr. Brattle might be related to a um, town in Vermont that could be directly linked to his family's uh, last name. The town in Vermont is called Brattleboro. I'm not 100% sure. I'd have to look it up on my end, but something tells me that um, William Brattle, his family could have a town in Vermont named after them being Brattleboro. So nonetheless, William Brattle is a loyal Tory from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he informs General Gage about the town's withdrawal of supplies from the powder house. You know, there's always one or two people out there who are willing to go above and beyond to spill the beans to the opposition or to someone above. And with that information, it's up to those leaders above to um, go a step further and uh, preventing further um, problems or pre prevent further, um, further discord, in other words. You know, it's one thing to relay that information, but it's all about being one step ahead of the enemy or just the opposition for that matter. So General Gage does have... The authority, given that he's the governor of Massachusetts, he has the authority to remove the remaining interim reserves from the powder house. On the other hand, the, the Whigs, or that is people who are against the crown, they're going to think differently on that because they, they will say, hey, we never gave the governor our consent to remove the remaining powder or the remaining reserves from the powder house. So... How would this mission be planned? It would, 
it would be um, coordinated from sea, where Lieutenant Colonel Madison's forces would use longboats from Boston Harbor. So think about it. You want to move by boats. If you move all your forces by land, the greater the likelihood that they will be seen from, um, from a nearby distance. But by boat, especially in the early morning hours or just in the, in the uh, night hours, Chances are you're you're not going to be seen unless you don't have too much um, light in your boat. In other words, yes, you might want to have a lantern on you, but some missions have to be performed so secret that even the faintest amount of light could ruin the, in some instances, ruin the mission onto itself. So we know at about 4.30 a.m. on September 1st, 1774, this mission officially begins. Soldiers arrive at a landing place called Temple's Farm, which is a mile away from the Powder House. Okay, that's a good place to land, because the less distance you have to travel, the less likely you might get caught. The soldiers, with the help, and I will mention his name here shortly, they do get help from the um, from a guardsman who basically has the keys to uh, lock and unlock the magazine house, that man opens the door for them. The soldiers, that is all 260 men who participate in this event, get access into um, into the uh, magazine house where they secure 250 half barrels of gunpowder. 250 um, half barrels, that's a lot. You know, when we think of interim reserves... Sometimes I think it's going to be less than 100 or or maybe just, you know, 50 barrels at most. Even that's a lot. I'm not sure how much they even took out during the summer before deciding on what would be the exact number. But now that we know there were 250 interim reserves of half barrels, that still is a lot. That's what I call seizing the granddaddy of them all right there. So by about... 12 o'clock in the afternoon, all the munitions that the British had seized were placed in um, a castle located right off the outskirts of uh, the city of Boston. It was called uh, Castle William. So this is where all the uh, reserves are going, and of course Castle William is where the majority of the British soldiers are garrisoned. And there was no loss of life. So the British are now getting some payback, okay? They, you know, here they've tried to pass laws like the Stamp Act, which was repealed. They passed the Townshend duties, and everything got repealed on there with the exception of the tax on the tea. Of course, you know, the Boston, then you have the uh, Boston Tea Party incident where um, men are dressed up as Indians in different groups, dumping the chests of uh, tea into the Boston Harbor as a way to express their displeasure on the dreaded tea tax. So, you know, to sum it up, okay, Parliament's tried X, Y, and Z. Now what do we need to do? We need to bring General Gage back over to um, Boston with a force of just over 2,000 men to enforce what we might now think of as martial law, on top of that, you've got these coercive acts, and you've already closed the port of Boston. The new port is an hour north away in Salem. 
um, people who can now be found guilty of offenses not only in Massachusetts but elsewhere in the colonies can now be sent to England to be tried for offenses. A new court system would be put into play where uh, the judges that would be picked, you know, are now going to be um, now have to um, have their allegiance um, toward the, towards the crown. So I, I'm saying all this, folks, because this is where we're now at. We have to look back at the past here real quick with the other series of events that had unfolded where the British had failed with their enforcement strategies. So now seizing the um, 250 half barrels at this uh, magazine house six miles northwest of Boston, this is a huge victory for them. This is their way of sticking it to us to say, hey, you all can express your displeasure all you want, but look what we've got in our possession that you all don't have. You all may have gunpowder, but you all are 250 half barrels short. So now we have a good way to stick it at you all. Now we're going to have to find out how the people of Massachusetts are going to respond to this, most notably the Whigs, not just the Whigs, the Whig leadership, but the people below Whig leadership who um, are all in this together but want to know how they can um, find a way to get back. So were the people of Massachusetts caught entirely by surprise? Well, for starters, yes. But even worse, rumors circulated from all corners. Okay, in the aftermath of the gunpowder seizure incident, one rumor had it that regulars were marching. That is, British uh, regular uh, troops were marching. War had begun. There was one rumor saying that six innocent bystanders had been killed to the king's ships bombarding Boston. While all these rumors were false, the people of Massachusetts were in a state of panic to where the British capture of the interim munitions became known as the powder alarm. So there you have it, folks. Seizing these interim reserves of munitions now sent the people in such a panic that they really didn't know what was going to happen next. This might have been a small-scale version of a 9-11 to the, to the people of Massachusetts, but they now know that their national security is at stake. And on the date of September 1st, 1774, church bells were ringing throughout all the towns to all the towns in Massachusetts that you know were impacted by this because it wasn't just, you know, the people of Boston that had uh, secured their munitions previously in this powder house. Uh, towns outside of Massachusetts, maybe 20 miles away, had secured mu their munitions at this facility. But the bottom line is What's impacting one town is impacting all the other nearby towns. And the Connecticut militia has picked up on this very quickly, because, you know, Connecticut, for one, borders Massachusetts, but the Connecticut militia begins to march towards Boston because they know that not only are they not immune from any of this, but they know that they could be next. So the bottom line is there has to be a, a new form of defense not only to protect so much the people of Massachusetts, but to get the words out to other nearby um, colonies that border Massachusetts, considering that Massachusetts is bordered not only by uh, Connecticut, but how about uh, Rhode Island, 
uh, New York State, and then you got New Hampshire to the north. So you think about it, folks. Four, four colonies alone could be uh, could be directly impacted by what just happened in uh, Massachusetts, most notably six miles northwest of Boston. This was a day of mourning, but it was also a day of getting back up and planning forward. So yes, the people can sit back and feel sorry all they want, but they're going to have to find a way to be resilient. They're going to have to find a way to prove to the uh, British regulars and to General uh, Gage that, hey, okay, you took 250 half-barrels of gunpowder from our magazine house. Now it's going to be our turn to show you what we're really made up of. So what town between Sudbury and Boston became known as Tory Row? The answer is Cambridge. It was home to prominent loyalists ranging from William Brattle to Colonel David Phipps, who was the Tory sheriff whom delivered keys to Lieutenant Colonel George Madison in securing the powder house munitions. So there you have it, folks. We have Colonel David Phipps, the Tory sheriff, We have him to thank for doing the unthinkable. But remember, folks, if your loyalties are to king and country, you're going to do anything in your power to deliver on a promise to someone else who has an allegiance not only to the king and to his country, but that to the the British military, like Lieutenant Colonel George Madison. And then another fellow, his name was Thomas Oliver, whom he served on General Gage's new royal council. So to name just a a few people who um, were of high Tory prominent status, these men lived in Cambridge, and that's why you get Tory Row, because Cambridge is home to all of those who do not like the rebels, who do not like the Whigs, who just do not like the fact that, that there are people who want to break ties with the mother country. So the day after, on September 2nd, 1774, a crowd of nearly 4,000 angry men assemble at Cambridge Common to voice their anger over William Brattle at his mansion estate in the aftermath of Brattle's letter to General Gage that fell into Whig leadership. You know, I hate to say this, folks, you you know, on one hand, yes, William Brattle did something that he, that many wished he had not done, but there again, when you have strong loyalties and you have strong feelings about something, you will do anything in your power to aid and abet someone who is on your side, if it means it's going to not only just backfire on you, but uh, lead the opposition to um, mobilize at a greater at a greater level to where to where more than say twenty five men will um, con- converge on your estate to express displeasure beyond one hundred one levels. So yes, Mister Brattle's letter did eventually fall into Whig leadership. And that's how all these men assembled at his estate. His actions regarding the munitions withdrawal forced him to remain as a fugitive for the rest of his life. But even worse, he was never allowed to return back home. So you could say in a way that while he wasn't forced to go live in another colony or, say, forced to move to Canada for exile purposes, 
we, we do know that he was never able to return back home. So, on the other hand, I should take it back, folks. He, maybe he was forced to go live somewhere else, but he was never able to return back to his physical home, all in the name of what he had done. It's a bad price to pay, even if it means being loyal to king and country. Well, how did General Gage respond to the countryside's retaliation? In other words, they responded back, but how did Gage respond? How did Gage respond on his end? Well, for starters, he was amazed at how well the countryside people mobilized, considering the fact they highly revered their fundamental personal liberties, like the right to keep and bear arms. But at the same time, he became very worried about New England as a whole, as more and more uprisings themselves would become inevitable. Okay, he knows that his own forces achieved an improbable task or mission by seizing 250 half barrels of gunpowder. But at the same time, he knows that while he can celebrate some success, he also knows that he has really upset a large faction of the population whom is not going to go down without a fight. And remember, folks, the British Empire is like an elephant. The enemy are like mosquitoes. The only problem is that the mosquitoes never go away. They come at all different angles. They come at all corners. You know, the elephant doesn't know sometimes what direction the mosquitoes are going to come from. Because more often than not, the mosquitoes are like surprises. When they come... They might start out small, but once they start gaining momentum, their numbers come to where the elephant just doesn't know where they're going to strike, and when they do strike, what is the aftermath of their mission going to um, say to the enemy, being that of the elephant. So the bottom line is General Gage is stuck between a rock and a hard place. So, would it be wise to say that if General Gage is that worried about what has happened in the aftermath of the gunpowder seizure, shouldn't he coordinate another plan? I would think so. Well, let's find out what he does. Shortly in the aftermath of the Provincial Powderhouse Munitions Seizure, British leadership under General Gage that were in the works of coordinating another mission to capture munitions 40 miles west of Boston in a place known as Worcester. And for those of you who are kind of interested in knowing how Worcester is spelled, it's W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R. Think of Worcestershire sauce that you might put on burgers, but in this case it's Worcester without the shire part. Yes, Worcester is between 40 and 50 miles west of Boston. But ironically, folks, General Gage makes a mistake. There is conflict within the upper ranks of British leadership on whether or not this mission should even be done. They decide that, hey, if another mission does take place and they are successful, they might just fuel the fire even more. Well, yes, you could fuel the fire, but on the other hand, if, if you've already got momentum on your side by having seized 250 half barrels of gunpowder, why not strike again? And think about this. The further inland you strike, 
it will be an even bigger blow to the enemy, in this case being the Whigs. Because if you strike 40 miles west of Boston, you're successful. Shoot, you can strike 20 miles west of Worcester and, and have the potential to, to be just as successful. Well, the bottom line is, folks, the plan is abandoned. And it's abandoned in large part because of the countryside's mobilization response after what had happened six miles northwest of Boston. This is where Gage's leadership, in my opinion, becomes very questionable. His timidness takes in. His cautiousness gets the better of him. It's one thing to, be a, to, to proclaim yourself as a leader, but you've got to be a leader even when, when you know that um, you could cause more rancor and um, dissatisfaction against the enemy. What's significant about September 21st, September 21st, 1774, being um, almost three weeks after the um, first uh, powder alarm incident or after the powder alarm incident uh, just outside of Boston happened, Whig leaders established a convention meet, a convention that met in Worcester, where they advocated in favor of town meetings to organize special companies of Minutemen where one-third would be ready to march at any moment's notice. And I can assure you this, folks, we will learn more about Minutemen later on in this um, book, because after all, Minutemen are vital, and I think you all should um, know, based off of what I just said a moment ago, being ready to march at any moment's notice. To the special committees or companies would also go about working on proposing a system of alarms and express riders that would be established throughout the colony. Express riders, folks, I think that should be important to note because we're going to also learn more about that as uh, time goes along in this series. You know, we did mention from the previous podcast about the committees of correspondence. Think of these special companies as like committees of correspondence, you know, except that these special companies are going to help our um, people in Massachusetts, most notably the soldiers, the Minutemen, get, be ready to march at any moment's notice, and then have riders go from north, south, east, west throughout the colony to get the word out about British uh, presence in a neighboring town or what the British might do in terms of having potential to seize munitions from a gun, from a magazine house that could be 10 miles away from, from the nearest uh, town. Continue to fasten your seatbelts there, folks. But in October of 1774, the former Massachusetts legislature met in defiance or in opposition of Governor Gage to where they established committees of safety and supplies. And in the fall of 74, Paul Revere became leader of a secret organization whose mission was to regain the upper hand on British, or I should say Tory intelligence findings, not just get the upper hand on the British intelligence findings, but how about to, to send a message by saying that, hey, you all may have succeeded the first go-round, but we're not going to be taking advantage again on that, on that level. In other words, we've learned from our mistakes. And so you can try all you want to get the upper hand on us, 
but we're not going to be fooled. So more power to Paul Revere, to John Hancock, Sam Adams, Dr. Joseph Warren, and James Otis by going to a greater level to, to be prepared. After all, if you don't take the initiative on this, folks, then how are you going to learn from, the, from past mistakes? How are you going to be one step ahead when it matters most, not just your livelihood, but that of the people's livelihood and their security and overall well-being? They don't know when the, when the enemy is going to strike, but by gathering intelligence, they can get the word out for people to, um, to mobilize better so that they can thwart the enemy off when it's least expected. So the next question is the following. How did General Gage, did General Gage learn about this secret society? He did. Okay. But who told him? Did a Tory tell him? Or did a Whig tell him? Believe it or not, folks, a Whig told him. Someone who was involved in the secret society. A man by the name of Dr. Benjamin Church. And why did Benjamin Church... What could have been the driving factor, folks, that would have driven someone to betray his fellow comrades? How about money? or I should say bribery. You know, uh, General Gage tried to bribe Samuel Adams. He tried to bribe, uh, I believe he tried bribing uh, James Otis as well. I'm not sure about Dr. Joseph Warren or John Hancock, but we do know that he did try bribing Samuel Adams, and Samuel Adams didn't fall for it. If Samuel Adams did, it would be a true act of betrayal, because Sam Adams has been an ardent patriot, since the um, since the first um, hostilities that were levied on the colonies, most notably the the Stamp Act of 1765. But Samuel Adams, Gage tried to bribe him when he first arrived on scene, but that didn't work. But nonetheless, Doctor Benjamin Church um, was steered away by bribery, and he told General Gage an abundance of information that was going on at these meetings. You would think that that General Gage would have known what to have done right away, but we're going to find out shortly that General Gage um, squandered those opportunities. But I'll tell you more here shortly. But Paul Revere and the other men never knew who had betrayed them. In other words, I guess had Dr. Church, if he had stopped going to these to the uh, gatherings altogether, then Paul Revere and his fellow comrades would have known that someone had betrayed them from within. But Benjamin Church still stayed on just as a way to probably cover his butt to say, hey, I'm, I'm a double spy. That is, I I may be on your side temporarily, but in reality, I'm actually working for the enemy. And believe it or not, folks, that was a very common thing during that time. Just when you thought you trusted someone, you never knew when they could betray you, all in the name of, of money. And as well as personal loyalties that may not have been revealed from, um, from the outside that were still looming from, from the inside. Now, 
here's where we're going to find out where um, where we as the uh, Patriots or the Whigs are going to be able to stick it to General Gage. What fort, being 50 miles north of Boston, was vulnerable given it had large quantities of gunpowder, cannon, to small arms? Okay? Does anybody want to take a guess? Uh, well, for starters, what colony is north of Massachusetts? Well, for starters, uh, when I think of a colony that's, when I think of a state that's north of Massachusetts, uh, three come to my mind, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. Let's keep this in mind, folks. Maine is not Maine at this time. New Hampshire, I mean, not New Hampshire, Massachusetts is in control of all of Maine. Maine won't become a state until 1820, but let's focus on where we're at right now. Uh, New Hampshire is north of Massachusetts. The city, the, the closest major city that um, is along the coast of New Hampshire, and it's not far from Boston, it's Portsmouth. So the fort being 50 miles north of Boston that is vulnerable is Fort William and Mary, now, I should admit, folks, that when I think of William & Mary, I think of William & Mary College in Williamsburg that was founded in 1693. How ironic that this Fort William & Mary is also named after the same King William and Queen Mary for whom William & Mary College in Virginia is named after. So Fort William & Mary is located right at the entrance to Portsmouth Harbor in New Hampshire, now, let's move forward to December 12th of 1774, okay? A good three months after the gunpowder incident had taken place in uh, Massachusetts where the British uh, performed the um, unthinkable and escaped without any loss of life. December 12th, 1774, British warships were spotted at sea along the New England coast and were rumored to be heading for New Hampshire, on December 13th, Paul Revere sets off by horse to warn the people of New Hampshire, or most notably the people of Portsmouth, and he does and, and he performs an improbable mission. How so? Well, he sets off by horse through snow. 50 miles. He did all this, folks, 50 miles from Boston all the way to Portsmouth in one day, folks. I mean, you think about that probably, on average, could have been at least a two-day journey, but Paul Revere somehow, by sheer luck, got from Boston to Portsmouth in one day in a 50-mile journey. And he arrived there in the afternoon. I don't know what time in the afternoon, but it was obviously before it got dark. And he went about addressing Portsmouth's Committee of Correspondence about two British regiment regulars that were planning to seize the gunpowder at Fort William and Mary. John Wentworth, who was New Hampshire's royal governor, and there is a town in New Hampshire named Wentworth, in honor of John Wentworth. John Wentworth was advised by a Tory, that is a local Tory, about Revere's arrival to New Hampshire. 
Well, folks, uh, remember that uh, there are loyalists everywhere in colonial America. They're not just loyalists in Virginia or in Massachusetts. There are loyalists as far north as New Hampshire, being the northernmost colony. So, yes, a, a, a local Tory advises uh, Governor Wentworth about Paul Revere's arrival to New Hampshire. I'm going to point this out right now, but I, I will actually have, ask a question here. How many um, British troops are manning Fort William and Mary? I'll give you choices. Choice A, 50. Choice B, 25. Choice C, less than 25. The answer is less than 25, but it doesn't even come close to being just under 25, like, say, 20. How about only six men manning Fort William and Mary? The only reason I can think of why maybe only six men are manning Fort William and Mary is because, for one, they know that the uh, threat of any invasion outside is very small, and two, um they probably don't have any reason to believe that any foreseeable attack on the fort would happen and that a small number can perform the job without the least um, known um, threat of resistance being conjured up could happen. Well, it does turn out that no British expedition had sailed for Portsmouth, but given Revere's presence already in New Hampshire... He has already gotten the word out to the uh, Portsmouth, um, what do you call it, the Portsmouth Committee of Correspondence team, to where they have gotten the word out to other people in the community who are jumping on information and now know that, hey, if the people of Massachusetts a couple of months ago were taken by surprise, then we could meet that same fate too if we don't do something about this now. So in other words, Paul Revere is trying to get a message out to the neighboring colony that, hey, don't make the same mistake that we did a couple of months back. Even if, the, even if this threat isn't real, we've got to do something to be proactive and to be one step ahead because if we don't take anything seriously in terms of a, a small-level threat, then what's going to happen when the real thing does take place? So on December 14, 1774, 400 New Hampshire militiamen were gathered up and began the preparations to seize Fort William and Mary. And by 3, by three o'clock, that was the goal, to, to seize the fort before dark. Some marched to the fort by land, whereas others arrived by sea via the Piscataqua River. Did the 400 New Hampshire militiamen have any trouble taking over Fort William and Mary? No, not one bit. Militiamen swarmed over the fort's walls from all directions, and they were met with minimal resistance. Once the magazine house became opened, the New Hampshire militiamen seized more than a hundred barrels of gunpowder and transported them by boat to Durham, is, is, which was a neighboring town out just on the outskirts of Portsmouth, as well as to secure places inland. 
What a huge success, folks. Minimal resistance. Think about it. 400 militiamen to six British troops. There's really no contest, folks. And the and the those six British troops, they surrendered pretty quickly. The Portsmouth alarm incident really was a huge blow to General Gage. Considering that Fort William and Mary was never in danger, but Paul Revere's secret mission alone had allowed a neighboring colony to take up arms against the crown without any forewarnings. In other words, Paul Revere's message was, hey, he may not have flat out said the British were coming, but he told the people of New Hampshire that, hey, there are British regiments marching I don't know where their current presence might be, but I do have word that they are marching en route to you all. And if that's the case, it's up to you all to defend your colony. And what do you know? By taking a hold of Fort William and Mary and seizing over 100 um, barrels of gunpowder, that just means right there, folks, that for one, we're not... We're not um, naive. We're not gullible. We've got outsiders looking after people from within whom know how to take matters into their own hands and do the unthinkable, which was done. And because of this, folks, the New Hampshire incident at Fort William and Mary inspired other New England towns from New London, Connecticut to Newport and Providence, Rhode Island to perform similar overt acts and seizing cannon and munitions from nearby forts. So this just wasn't a, new, a, a Massachusetts problem, folks. The success that, uh, that was attained at New Hampshire as well as elsewhere in new, uh, Rhode Island and Connecticut, it was a joint effort to stand up to England and say, hey, you all may be, you all may have a contingency of uh, troops garrisoned not only in Massachusetts, but as well as in New Hampshire and a small contingency of troops in Connecticut and Rhode Island, but we're gonna, not going to allow your presence to deter us from standing up and taking arms against you all. But, it, but if it also means performing secret overt acts, then we're not afraid to do it. General Gage is in a lot of trouble, folks. It's bad enough that the Portsmouth alarm incident was um, a blow to him, and that he did not um, he did not see this coming. But also the fact that he um, did not proceed for, forward with um, the Worcester. Um, what do you call it? With the uh, with seizing munitions from the. Um, powder alarm in Worcester. What did General Gage fail to do? There are several things he failed to do, but I'm just going to name one. He should have sent troops, um, he should have sent his forces well outside of Boston early on. If he had done so, where could he have gone as far west as into? New York State. He could have sent troops into Albany. Why Albany, New York? Well, think about it, folks. You've got the, the Six-Nation Alliance, the Iroquois Nation, the Oneidas, the Senecas, Cayugas, Canandaguas, um, Tuscarora, um, just to name a, a few of the, of the tribes, uh, the Seneca. Think about this. If, you, if they could have established an alliance with, with those Indian tribes, 
those Indian tribes could have marched into Massachusetts and could have captured um, towns. They could have burned them. They could have taken munitions as far away as uh, from western Massachusetts, which borders New York State. So General Gage missed a true significant um, opportunity that could have crushed everything that the Whigs stood for. So his principles regarding leniency and treatment of Americans remained intact in the aftermath of the Portsmouth Alarm incident, but it angered British soldiers because they themselves knew Gage had abundant intelligence to where Paul Revere himself could have been arrested and deported to England where he would have stood trial and most likely been hung for his offenses. You know, yes, you don't want to... um, How do you call it? You don't want to fuel the fire anymore, but sometimes that fire has to be fueled if it means quashing a rebellion. General Gage may have prevailed early on in September of 1774 by securing 250 half-barrels of gunpowder, but at the same time, he failed to um, capitalize on what Dr. Benjamin Church knew. Had he done this, Paul Revere never would have been able to have gone to New Hampshire. And Fort William and Mary would have remained in British hands. It's fair to say that both sides struck a blow to one another, but I would have to say that the Whigs struck the greater, the greatest of blows and that they went into a neighboring colony who was able to um, rid British presence. But by doing so without any... Um, open rebellious act that would have um that would have uh, tipped off um the crown and tipped off its rulers folks i will tell you this intelligence is one thing it's one thing to obtain intelligence it's how you go about exercising it on the enemy if you don't exercise it properly then you will miss golden opportunities to quash the enemy, quash its up, to quash further uprisings. We've covered a lot of ground, folks, and I'm glad to have been back on the air again today, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. When I am back on the air again next, we're going to talk more about the mission, the British plans, and the American preparations. Thank you again to all of you who have been faithful listeners and uh, continue to get the word out to those whom would like to not only listen to my podcasts, but also do uh, podcasting through Anchor because it's free, the opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Take care and stay safe. Thank you.